Well, thanks, Steve, and good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here at the, uh, the 10 o'clock service at Grace Church, and uh, glad to be with you as we continue a series we started last week that we've been calling You Plus Hope. And if you guys are with us last week, you might remember this is our, our Christmas series. And, uh, and so basically, if you're, if you're a guest with us this morning, what we've been talking about is we've been talking about how Christmas is, uh, is much more than just a, a celebration of some past event that happened. We've been saying that really what Christmas is, is actually a, a very profound declaration about the character of God, about the presence of God, about, the, about who God is and how he interacts in our lives. And so we've been talking about how Christmas really brings us hope, how it brings us real hope today. And so if you were with us last week, you might remember we, we kind of gave you the big idea right out of the gate. We said the big idea for this whole series, we kind of summarized it in one phrase, and you can write it down if you want to, as it's kind of been the heartbeat of this whole series, has been this. We've been saying that God's past faithfulness secures our future confidence, that, that what God has done in the past says something very loudly about what he will do in the future. Um, that the way that God interacts in the Christmas story uh, not only tells us about the Christmas story, but it actually informs us about God, that Christmas is more than just a past event. It's a profound declaration about the character of God, about the love of God, and it allows us to have hope uh, because of what Christ has done. So we've been talking about how Christmas gives us hope. Now, if you happen to miss last week's conversation, like I said, if you're a guest, thanks for being here. I would really encourage you, however, if you want to, to go to our website, graceohio.org, and uh, you can click on the Medina East page there, and you can either watch or download and listen to, subscribe to the podcast and listen to last week's sermon. And again, I'd encourage you to do that because we laid some groundwork uh, in this conversation. We kind of talked about this idea of how Christmas brings us hope, how God's past faithfulness secures our future confidence. This week, however, as we're kind of continuing in this series, we want to talk a little bit about, about specifically how Christmas brings us hope. And I want to look at one particular dimension of how Christmas brings you and I hope in a very specific way. So what I want to talk about today is really this. I want to talk about how Christmas informs us of a very, very important point, a very important truth. And I want to talk about how Christmas uh, explains this to us. But this is, this is what I want to talk about today. And you can write this down if you're taking notes. That the silence of God is not the absence of God. Okay? I believe that Christmas informs us, if you look at the Christmas story, it informs us that the silence of God does not mean the absence of God. That, that at times while God may seem silent, that does not mean that God is absent. Now, I think this is a very important point, and I think this is a very important discussion for a couple different reasons. And one of the main reasons I think this is an important conversation is because I think one of the things every person in this room can relate to, all of us who are here today that we can all relate to, is that every single one of us has to reckon with the silence of God. Whether you're a Christ follower or whether you're not a Christ follower, whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or whether you're investigating Jesus, I think one of the things that all of us in this room have in common with it, together is that we have to reckon with, we have to wrestle with, we have to account for the silence of God. Right? And there are many of us who are in this room, and myself included, who have been through seasons or maybe are even right now going through a season where you are trying to, uh, trying to account for the silence of God. And so maybe, like, like me, you've had seasons in your life when you've cried out to God, and you cried out to him in desperation for his providence. Maybe there was a, a hard situation or something you were going through, and you said, God, I, with all the faith I can muster up in me, with all the belief that I can kind of summon, I'm asking you with desperation that you would please intervene in this situation. I'm asking you that you would just show yourself, deliver whatever the circle, intervene in some way. And it seemed that as much as you cried out to God, it was only met with silence. 
Maybe you had a, a relative who was sick or maybe you had a, a family member who was going through a hard thing and you cried out to God and you asked God, please, please, please deliver that person. Please, God, intervene in this situation. But it seemed like as much as you cried out, it was only met with the silence of God. And we're all forced to reckon with the silence of God. Or maybe for you, there's a relationship that you were going through and there was a tough breakup or maybe for you it was a marriage that was headed towards divorce or maybe it was estranged children or family dynamics that something went wrong in the relationship and the relationship was tense and you cried out to God and you begged him with all the faith you could muster in your heart, right? With all the belief that you could conjure up, God, please save my marriage. God, please save this relationship. God, please intervene, reconcile, do something. And yet it seemed that as much as you cried out to God, it was only met with silence. I think it's one of the things that all of us have to reckon with at some point is the silence of God. Or maybe for you, you're a person that's investigating Jesus and you're not real sure what you believe. Or maybe there was a time that you would say that you had faith in Christ, but, but over the years, you've either lost that faith or you've drifted from that faith. And maybe one of the reasons why is because there's been times where you've cried out to God, God, I want to believe in you. I want to believe in you. But, but you need to show me something, reveal yourself to me, give me something. And yet it seemed like as much as you cried out to God, it was only met with silence. So one of the things that I know that all of us have to deal with in this life at some point or another, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, is we have to account for the silence of God. What do we do when God seems silent? Well, one of the things that I also know about this conversation is that not only is this common, not only is this something that's typical, but I would say it's unanimous. In the human experience, this is a unanimous thing that we all have to deal with the silence of God. In fact, when you go back to the Bible, one of the things that you see in Scripture is you see that some of the greatest men and women of faith were not exempt from dealing with the silence of God. So I'll just give you a couple examples. Some of you might remember Job, right? Job, we all kind of know his story. Job was a guy who had a lot, loved God, was faithful to God. It was all taken from him. And the Bible tells us that Job really wrestled with the silence of God, and he never sinned. But he wrestled with the silence of God. He wasn't exempt from it. So look what he says in Job chapter 30, verse 20. He says, I cry out to you for help, and you don't answer me. He says, I stand, and you only look at me. What's, what's Job talking about? Job is vocalizing an emotion that I think all of us can sympathize with, right? God, I cry out to you, but you don't hear me, right? I'm begging you for your deliverance, and it feels like you're just staring at me. You're not even doing anything. And what's he vocalizing? He's vocalizing the common experience that all of us have, which is that of the silence of God. How do you account for it? Uh, the psalmist, for example, here's another example. There are many psalms we can go to, by the way, but David says in Psalm chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Here's what he's saying. He's, God, why does it seem like whenever trouble comes, I can't find you? You're nowhere to be found. You're just gone. Why is that the case? And what's he vocalizing? He's vocalizing, I think, something we can all sympathize to. It's the silence of God. One of the things all of us will struggle with, wrestle with, have to account for, is the silence of God. Now there have been many people, and you might be one of them today, who have took the silence of God in account, and it's led you to believe that the silence of God means the absence of God. That the only logical explanation that God would be silent is because he's absent. He's not real. There is no God. And that's why he's silent. Many people have come to that conclusion. You might be a person that came to that conclusion as well. What I want to talk about today is I want to talk about how I believe that Christmas tells us that God's silence does not mean his absence. That God's past faithfulness at Christmas actually tells us that God's silence is not his absence, but it's something else. 
I want to talk about that today as we look at a very familiar story in the Bible, the Christmas story. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you take them with me? And I want to introduce you to a really important couple who is well acquainted with the silence of God. I want to talk about how God intervened in their lives and helped them understand this experience that all of us have. So Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to go this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and get to Luke chapter 1 if you want to. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. We actually have some Bibles. I think they're out there in the chairs in front of you, and you can just take those, and you can flip to page 714 in those Bibles we have provided for you. So you're going to find Luke chapter 1. Um, or if you're a phone or tablet person, you could um, download a free, a free Bible app called YouVersion, Y-O-U version. That's totally free, and there's several translations and that kind of thing. So if, you're, if you'd rather do that, you could do that too. And let me just say as well um, that if you don't own a Bible, if you're kind of a guest with us, you don't own a Bible, you don't have a newer translation of the Bible, you can just do me a favor and just take one of ours and right? make it a gift from us to you. Write your name in it and take it home. We think it's really, really important that you have a Bible. So Luke chapter 1, page 714. Let's take a look at this very familiar story in the Christmas story. So let's start in verse 5, right? Verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. The wife of Elizabeth was also, his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So let's just hit pause there. I just want to point out a few key features in these verses that I think kind of helps us understand a little bit about the setting of the story we're about to read. Okay, so one of the things you'll notice first and foremost is the Bible tells us that the account we're about to read happens in the time of King Herod. All right, this Herod, by the way, some of you might be familiar with this. If you're familiar with the Christmas story, this was a very famous Herod. He was a very famous character in the Christmas story. This is Herod the Great. This is the Herod, some of you know, you don't, many of you only know him for this, that there was a season in time when he executed uh, the firstborn males who were two and under in this region. So this is the Herod that killed babies. Uh, he was called Herod the Great. The reason he was called Herod the Great is because of his great accomplishments. He was a very, very ambitious person. History tells us uh, that he went to great lengths to accomplish great feats. And oftentimes, the way that he would do that was through very violent and wicked means. So this is a Herod who was notorious for killing his family members. Uh, this was a Herod who had several wives. He was responsible for killing many of his mother-in-laws. Uh, I know some of you don't like your mother-in-laws, but it's like a whole new level. And he would do that. And so the Bible really tells us, and I just want you to understand that the Bible is telling us that this is the backdrop in which this story is about to take place. It's a very bleak situation. The nation of Israel is under the leadership of a very wicked man. He is a very powerful and a very paranoid person. And so the Bible tells us that that's the circumstance. It's kind of a hopeless circumstance. Right? The Bible goes on and introduces us to two characters, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, one of the things I want you to notice that the Bible tells us in this verse about Zechariah and Elizabeth is it tells us not only that they were a married couple, but it also tells us about the family that they came from. So the Bible tells us that Zechariah, it says that he was a priest, and he belonged uh, to uh, this priestly division of Abijah, which basically meant this, that Zechariah came from a lineage of priests, that his dad was a priest, that his dad's dad was a priest, that his great-grandpa was a priest, that his great-great-grandpa was a priest, on and on down the line. He, basically, he was like a pastor's kid. He came from a long ministry lineage, and he himself was in the ministry. He was a priest. And the Bible also tells us that Elizabeth, his wife, if you notice, it says that she was also a descendant of Aaron. What that meant was this, is that she also came from a ministry family that her father would have been a priest, and her father's father would have been a priest, and her father's father's father would have been a priest. So basically, here's a couple who has grown up kind of in the church, for I guess lack of a better term. They kind of grew up in ministry families. They themselves were in ministry. 
They were acquainted with the teachings of God. They were acquainted with the things of God. They themselves were faithful to God. And so we kind of get that picture of this couple. Let's just keep going here. Let's take out verse 6. Here's verse 6. Both of them, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and decrees blamelessly. So the Bible says God basically would look at this couple and he would be like, they're doing it right. That was God's feeling to them. The Bible says that they were righteous in God's sight. They were blameless in their obedience command. This didn't mean they were perfect. It just meant that God looked at them and said, no, they're doing it right. They're doing life right. And then notice what it says in verse 7. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. So here in verse 7, we actually have some clues uh, to something we're about to find out as we read the rest of the story. As we read the rest of the story, one of the things that we're going to find out is that Zechariah and Elizabeth were a couple who were well acquainted with the silence of God. We're going to find this out. And, and, and we're going to see that really there's two ways in which they were acquainted with the silence of God. They were acquainted with the silence of God personally, and they were acquainted with the silence of God nationally. Okay, so personally, you just saw in verse 7, there's some indication here. The Bible tells us that this was a couple that was faithful to God, that loved God, yet they struggled with infertility. And the Bible tells us that their entire married life, we're going to find out a little bit later in this story, their entire married life, they had been praying that God would give them a child and praying and praying and praying. And the Bible says that all the years of prayer, that in all of that time, that all they heard from God was silence. Silence. They were a couple who was personally uh, acquainted with the silence of God. Now the Bible tells us that they were old age, of old age, which basically meant their past, their childbearing years. So the Bible tells us that this is a couple who is personally acquainted with the silence of God. Now I know there are probably some of you today who are in this room who, who have either faced that struggle or are facing that struggle right now, one that Zechariah and Elizabeth did of infertility. And, and my guess is you, you know better than anyone, or maybe you have a family member or a friend that's kind of facing that right now as well, and you know the, the hard the, the hard hurt and the, the dull pain of hopelessness um, that can come in the midst of situation. And so this is a couple who was personally acquainted with the feeling of the silence of God. They cried out to God and they prayed to God, but oftentimes when they prayed, they heard nothing in response. Silence of God. To make matters a little more complicated, back in this time, unfortunately, it's kind of an abusive thing, but religious leaders would actually teach back in this time, the Jewish religious leaders would teach that if you were unable to conceive that it was probably because of your own sin, that you did something wrong, therefore you're unable to conceive, which, like I said, is a very abusive thing. And we actually see in this passage that that is not the case. The Bible says that in God's eyes they were righteous and they were blameless. It had nothing to do with it. But this was a couple who was personally acquainted with the silence of God. Personally, but then secondly, they were acquainted with the silence of God nationally. Right? Elizabeth and Zechariah came from a very long heritage of a, of, of a faith community. They were part of the Israelites, God's chosen people. And this was a group of people who was characterized by their waiting. The Bible tells us, we looked at this a little bit last week, that God had made some promises that he was going to send a Messiah. And generation after generation after generation waited for that promise to be fulfilled, and they never saw it happen. As a matter of fact, the, the, what we're about to look at in this passage, we're about to see something happen that's so supernatural it's out of this world. It's this incredible situation where God intervenes in a powerful way. We're about to witness this, but the Bible tells us and historians tell us that before this event takes place, that it has been 400 years since God has sent a message, since God has sent a prophet, 
since God has intervened in any way, 400 years of absolute silence of people waiting for God to intervene in some way. And so I want you just to imagine for a minute, here's Zechariah and Elizabeth. They grew up in kind of with the priestly family, and they would have watched their fathers give their lives to being obedient and faithful to a God who they never saw intervene in any way. And they would have seen their father's father, their grandfathers, live a life in obedience to God and, 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 and living life believing that God would answer his promise and send a Messiah and send a sign and hearing nothing. And they would have seen, they heard stories of their great-grandfathers and their great-great-grandfathers and their great-great-grandfathers and how they held out this hope and they trusted that God would move, but they never saw it happen in their lifetime. Look, this was a group of people who represented a nation that was acquainted with the silence of God. 400 years of nothing. The promises of God were said, but they heard nothing in this time. So they were acquainted with the silence of God. Yet the Bible tells us that this couple continued to faithfully serve God. They continued to hold on to hope, believing that God would one day intervene, believing that God would answer their prayers. And then one day, something kind of crazy happens. An amazing once-in-a-lifetime opportunity drops on Zechariah's lap. And I just want to read this to you because it's an incredible thing. So it starts off in verse 8. It says, Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. And he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So let me just just kind of help you understand this. What's happening here is a really amazing circumstance that for Zechariah would have been a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So back in this time, there was about 18,000 priests that would have served at the temple in Jerusalem. All right, so what they would do with those 18,000 priests is they would actually break them up into 24 divisions. We were told earlier, Zechariah was of the division of Abijah, which basically meant he was one of those 24 divisions. And what they would do then is that once a year, their division would go and they would serve in Jerusalem for two weeks. And there would be you know, a number of priests that would have been there, hundreds, maybe thousands of priests that would have been there. And every day, one of the priestly duties that was given to the priests is that they would have to go in and light the, the incense on the altar of incense. This would have been inside of the holy place in the temple, not the holy of holies, but the holy place in the temple. And just get this, even if you don't understand all the Bible stuff, this would have been, for Zechariah, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Many of the priests never had a chance to do this. And so Zechariah, this is like the big day, man. It's like his Super Bowl. He gets chosen to go light the incense in the holy place. This is awesome. So the Bible says, man, this moment comes and he goes into the temple to light the incense. And when he goes in there to do this, something unbelievable happens. Watch this. Check it out. So he goes in, verse 11. Then, he goes in there, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now this is just awesome. One of the things I love about the Christmas story is how the angels are so involved. So the Bible says Zechariah goes in there to light the the altar of incense, and there's an angel standing there by the altar. Now, I don't know what he's doing. I just imagine him leaning there, just leaning kind of like this, waiting for Zechariah. So he's leaning there. It says he was at the right side of the altar of incense. Now, when Zechariah sees the angel, check out his response, verse 12. When he saw him, he was startled, right, which you would be too. You would not be expecting that. And he was gripped with fear. Now, last week, you guys might remember we talked about this. We said that the classic response when a human meets an angel is that they're terrified. That's just what happens when you meet an angel. And so, you know, you never see in the Bible that someone, oh, they met an angel and, oh, they were so comforted when they saw the angel and they felt peace. Like, no way, they're scared, right? And you would be too. 
And the Bible says he was terrified. And so what does the angel say in verse 13? Very classic angel response. But the angel said, don't be afraid. They're always saying that because people are always scared. They're probably tired of that. You know, like, oh, come on, just get over it. So he's like, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Check this out. Your prayer has been, oh, this is awesome, heard. Your prayer has been heard. Wait a minute. You mean to tell me that even though God has been silent, that he hasn't been absent? Yeah. You mean to tell me that even though God has been quiet, he's heard? Yes. God has heard you. Check this out. This is awesome. Your wife Elizabeth, in case you didn't remember who she was, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you're to call him John. Now, some of you might know, if you know the Christmas story somewhat, this John is going to be a very, very famous John. He's going to be John the Baptist. He's a big deal, right? In fact, uh, the angel goes on to explain this guy. Look, he talks about John the Baptist, verse 14. He will be a joy and a delight to you. Many will rejoice because of his birth. He will be, a great, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. Look at verse 16. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Bring back. Why is he going to bring them back? Because many of them have left. A lot of the Israelites interpreted the silence of God as the absence of God, and so they abandoned God. And so the Bible says, you know, John's going to come. He's going to bring many people back to him. Verse 17. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit of the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the, of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, I want you to get this because this is huge and it can get lost if you just read it once. But Zechariah, right, he was a priest. He was a Bible guy. He would have been very well acquainted with what the Bible teaches in the Old Testament. And he would have known that when the angel said this to him, that he was referring to something that was spoken in the book of Malachi. In the book of Malachi, the prophet says this. He declares that one day there's going to be one who's going to come in the spirit of Elijah, and he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's going to come. The Messiah's coming. And so what the angel just told Zechariah is this. He said, everything that you've been hoping for, everything that you've been waiting for is about to come to you. God has heard your prayer. God has been silent, but he has not been absent. He hears you. He may have been quiet, but he's been listening to you. And now, the thing that you guys have been praying for, you and your wife, you're going to have a child now, and the one that, that your father and your grandfather and your great-grandfather has been waiting for, that hope that they've been waiting for, the Messiah, he's coming too. All of it's going to happen. You guys, this had to have been for Zechariah a surreal moment. Can you imagine? All this hope and all this time waiting, and then he goes in there, he has this amazing opportunity, he goes in there to light the incense, and he meets an angel, which is wild. And the angel basically tells him, everything that you've been holding out, for hope, uh, holding out hope for is going to happen. Your hope is not in vain. God has heard you. Can you guys imagine? I mean, I, I'm just saying, if I was him, I don't know what I would do. I'd be so excited, I'd probably start singing. I'd be like, yeah, I'd be like, too. I knew it. I knew it. You know, I told you. That's what I would do, right? What does Zechariah do? Well, that's not what he does. Zechariah does what probably most of us would actually do, and he doubts it. Right, look at his response here in verse 18. Zechariah asks the angel, how can I be sure of this? I, I love this. Watch what he says. This is awesome. I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. <laughs> A very diplomatic way of 
saying. I gotta take some lessons from this guy. My guess is he probably saw the angel and he's like, I know that when angels show up, things tend to get written in the Bible. <laughs> I'm gonna play this one straight. So it's like, I'm gonna have a kid. I'm old. You know, I'm old. I am old. I'm old. You know, and my wife, man, she's, you know, well along in the years. Very diplomatic. Totally doubts it. Now, it, the angel's response, man, this is awesome. Watch this. The angel said to him, this is so awesome. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you to tell you this good news. All right, so, so just think about this. Zechariah goes into the temple to light the incense, a big moment for him. He goes in there. He goes up to the, to the, to the altar, and there's an angel waiting there for him. This is wild. The angel shows up. He's terrified. He's like, don't be scared. Just the traditional, you know, just the response of the angel. That all happens. And he says, I got good news for you. And here's what's going to happen. God's heard your prayer. He's been silent, but he's not been absent. He heard you. He's going to give you a son. And then the Messiah is going to come. And it's awesome. And then he's like, oh, yeah, but I'm not really not sure how it's going to happen. I'm old. My wife's well long years. And Gabriel's like, dude, you're talking to an angel. Do you know the percentage of the population of humanity that has the opportunity to speak to one who stands before God. He's like, come on, you serious, Zachariah? You serious, Zachariah? You sure, Zachariah? <laughs> For real. And, uh, and then <laughs> this, is, this next part I find humorous. It's probably not supposed to be, but I find it that way. Look at verse 20. Gabriel says, and now you will be silent. He's like, you've got to shut up. That's the Tony translation. You, you will be silent and you will not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words. See, he says, because you didn't believe me, now I'm going to give your wife the greatest gift ever. I'm going to give her a silent husband in the midst of her pregnancy. <laughs> Some of you are like, amen. You know? But then check this next part. I want you to notice the latter part of verse 20. I think this is so key, by the way. I just want you to notice one little phrase that's used there that I think is so important to understanding the silence of God. And for some of you, this one little statement has the power to unlock the whole mystery of the silence of God. Check it out what he says. He says, because you did not believe my words, which will come true, here it is, at their appointed time. At their appointed time. This is so important this little statement. Some of you have different translations. Um, if you have the NASB or the ESV, I believe it says this. It says, at their proper time is the word that's used. At their appointed time, at their proper time. Galatians 4.4 4 says it this way. It says, in the fullness of time. In the fullness of time. You guys, I think this is so important because I believe that one of the keys to understanding the silence of God is understanding the timing of God. I don't know if you've noticed this. I've kind of noticed this in my experience, and I think it's an unfortunate thing, and I'm probably partially responsible for it. But one of the things I notice is that we tend to love to teach about the promises of God. We love that. We love looking at these big, sweeping stories where these incredible things are happening and the promises of God are declared. But oftentimes we teach the promises of God without teaching the timing of God. And I think if you know the promises of God without knowing the timing of God, it can set you up with a lot of frustration with God. Because what happens is you don't understand the silence of God. Let me try to put it in a more succinct way. I put it this way in my notes. If you want to jot it down, you can jot it down if you want to. But here's the way that I put it. I said the silence of God is not the absence of God, but is the timing of God. 
oftentimes, the silence of God is not the absence of God. It is the timing of God. Understanding that God is working things in his time, not on our timetables, but in his timetable. He's considering things we don't understand. He's working things out that we don't even, under, that we don't even comprehend. He's more interested in working in us than giving something to us. And because of that, his timing is crucial. Now, think about it this way. One of the things I'm learning right now um, with my little boys is that they are in currently a stage in life. They're kind of entered into this stage. And I don't know if it's just a, if you guys have older kids, you probably know. I don't know if it's just like something that lasts a little while, if it's going to last forever. Um, it might because I could see a little bit of it in me too. But they're in this stage right now where if they ask me for something and I don't give it to them immediately, they think that I hate them, right? And they will respond to me the way they'll respond when I tell them not now or when I say that to them is they will respond with this over-the-top, dramatic, fatalistic response. I mean, it is, it is like on par with a Shakespearean performance. It's unbelievable to me. So, so for example, my son will come up to me and I'll say, Dad, can I have a snack, right? Great question. My answer, not now, not now. And he will give me, this is his response. It is so fatalistic. He goes, oh, I'll never have a snack. Never. I'm like, never, never. I'll never have the sugary goodness on my tongue again. This is so dramatic. And I'm like, oh, cut it out with the drama. Seriously, man, stop. And, and what, what, because I know something he doesn't know. I'm considering things he doesn't Consider, I know that if he has snacks right now, he's going to ruin his dinner, right? And then he, if he, if he, in his dinner has things that he doesn't want to eat, it's got broccoli and things that have nutrients, but I know as his father, that's important because it's going to help him to grow up, to be a mature adult, to move out when he's 18, right? <laughs> and to stay out after he's 18. Like, that's what I want for him. And so I'm making these decisions based on that. And I know that, but for him, when I say no, not right now, he interprets it as neglect. Dad doesn't care. He's neglecting my needs. When in reality, the reason I'm doing it is because I love him. And I'm, consider, I'm considering things he's not even considering. My youngest, for whatever reason right now, I don't know why, he, wa he wants to drink gallons of water before bed. I don't understand it. He's three. So you know, at, that, well, at any age, really. But uh, at that age especially, it's, it's like that could be problematic, right? And so, so he'll come up to me before bedtime. Dad, can I have a drink? And I'll say, not right now. And he'll say, I'll never have a, and they both do this, and it just drives me nuts. I'll never have a drink of water ever again. Be parched for eternity. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, get over yourself, you know, whatever. And, and I'm like, look, I'm considering things you don't understand. If you have water right now, it's going to equal a long night and a wet bed and a grumpy mother. And you don't want, and none of those things are good for you. It will not go well for you if those things happen. I'm considering these things. Listen, for you and I, sometimes when we cry out to God and we ask God and we beg God and it's met with the silence of God, we tend to, we tend to interpret that silence as God's neglect or God's uncare for us. But listen, what you have to understand is that God's silence does not mean his absence. It's usually his timing. And we got to hear me on this. What I'm not telling you is that when you ask for something that God is always going to give it to you. That's not the case. Same with my kids. My kids ask me for something. I'm not always going to give it to them all the time. But what I am saying is that if God promised you something, he's going to give it to you. And you can trust him. If you hold on to hope and you believe it, God's silence does not mean his absence. It's typically his timing. One of the things I found in my own life to be true, and I've also found in Scripture, 
and it's, found, it's given me so much encouragement. And I don't know, my hope is that maybe for you this morning, it gives you some encouragement too. One of the things that I found to be true about God, I wrote it this way in my notes, is that the moments of God's greatest silence often result in the display of his highest power. This is something that I've noticed about God, not just from the Bible, but from my experiences, is that the moments of God's greatest silence often result in the display of his power. In other words, the times that we believe that God is most absent usually tend to be the times that God is working in the most powerful ways to give himself the most glory and to change us from the inside and to transform us. I'll just give you a couple examples of that. So you guys might remember back in the Old Testament, one of the most famous stories that we love to teach on in the Bible is the parting of the Red Sea. It's this classic teaching, and everyone loves to talk about that. What we don't tend to teach about is the 400 years of silence that came before that moment. The Bible says that there was 400 years of silence where the people cried out to God, God, deliver us, deliver us from the Egyptians. And it seemed that God was absent, but he wasn't absent because he was doing things in his time. And the Bible says that he eventually sent Moses, and Moses came, and he delivered the people out of Egypt. And you guys might remember when they went out of Egypt, God set them up into a very strange predicament where he led them out, and the Bible says they had the Red Sea at their back, they had the mountains surrounding them, they had the army of the Egyptians bearing down on them. It was an impossible scenario that God had led them in. You know what the Bible says the people started to do at that moment? They began to pray. And you know what their prayer looked like? It was like this. God, why did you do this to us? Was there not enough graves in Egypt that you would bring us out here to kill us? Why are you silent now? Why have you abandoned us now? They interpreted God's silence as God's absence, but what they didn't know is that God's silence was not his absence, it was his timing. Because God was about to do something that would maximize his glory, that would give glory to him and give faith to his people, and God did something that no one expected, and he split the Red Sea, and he sent them through at just the right time, at his appointed time. You see, guys, you've got to understand that you and I, we walk around life, we are so limited in our perspective we are so limited by time and by our experiences, by our finite fallibility. We are just so limited. God steps outside of time. He sees things from a different dimension. He considers things that we don't know. And so God knows the perfect timing to accomplish things. God's not concerned about being on time because God's not in time. Even think about it. He knows the precise moment that's going to maximize his glory and bring you the best blessing and he sets things up that way. Some of you might remember in the New Testament, the Bible tells us about Lazarus, right? Lazarus is a good friend of Jesus. And the Bible says that Lazarus was sick and to death. And so Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, sent for Jesus. And they said, Jesus, you've got to come quick. Lazarus is going to die. You've got to get here because if you get here, you can heal him. And you know what the Bible says Jesus does when he got that message? Rather than running to Lazarus, he chose to purposefully stay away. He chose to be silent. The Bible says after Lazarus died, days have now passed. Lazarus has been dead. He comes over to see the family. Mary and Martha are there. And you remember what they told Jesus? Remember what they said in their first words? This is what they said. Jesus, if you would have been here, if you weren't absent, if you hadn't been silent, all this would have been different. We see what they didn't know was that the silence of God wasn't the absence of God. Oh, it was the timing of God. And the moment in which God seemed the most absent was about to be one of God's greatest displays of power. And he went into Lazarus, and the Bible says when he saw Lazarus, Lazarus stinketh. Remember that? It's awesome. And then he said, get up, and Lazarus got up. And God was glorified, and the faith of God's people was raised, 
Why? Because God's timing was perfect. You guys, on the cross, when Jesus was on the cross, the disciples thought all hope was lost. They had put their hope in this man they thought was going to be the Messiah, and now he was dead. And they believed that God was silent, and they believed that God was absent. But what they didn't know was that the silence of God wasn't the absence of God. It was the timing of God. In a moment where God seemed the most absent, God was working for the greatest power. He was accomplishing our salvation. See, the thing we have to understand is that while we're waiting, God is working. He is always working. His silence is not his absence. Christmas tells us, God's past faithfulness informs us that while God may be silent, he is not absent. His timing is perfect, and you can trust in him. So, you guys, I hope for some of you today, you're, you're, you're wrestling with the silence of God in your life. You're trying to account for it. You're begging God, asking God to intervene. You're asking for his presence in a powerful way. You're looking at the things that he's promised you, and you're not seeing it transpire in your life. And at this point, for some of you, quite honestly, you're ready to abandon it. You're ready to give up. Listen, Christmas tells us, it informs us, God's past faithfulness secures a future confidence for us that God is not, even though he's silent, he is not absent. He is not absent. He is there, and you wait on him. You wait on God. You will not be disappointed in the end. My hope is that for many of us today, that we would make a declaration in our hearts that reflects that that we see in the Bible in the book of Micah, where he says this in Micah 7, 7. But as for me, maybe for you, this is the declaration you need to make in your heart right now in the silence of God that you're facing. As for me, for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. Everyone else will abandon. Others will quit. Other people will believe that the silence of God means the absence of God, and they'll abandon God. As for me, I'm going to watch in hope for the Lord. I will wait for my God, my Savior. He will hear me. He will hear me. And Christmas tells us that we can have a real hope, that God's past faithfulness secures a future confidence, a hope that's real, that though God is silent, that he is not absent, that his timing is perfect, and that in the moments where God seems that he is the most absent, he is usually working out his highest display of power. Wait for it. Wait for it in your life. Let's pray together. Jesus, I want to say thank you for your words to us this morning. And I know for many of us, we need to hear, we need to hear that what the hope that you have to offer us is not some synthetic, fake hope that we can't cling to. It's a real hope. And Father, I'm so thankful that while in times of life that you're silent, that you're not absent. I pray that you would teach us that, Father, because as, as finite human beings who see things from a limited vantage point, it is hard for us not to interpret your silence as absence, not to interpret your quietness as if, as if you don't care, as neglect. And Father, for many of us, it's hard for us to see through our circumstances. But Jesus, you've given us some promises in the scripture. Lord, you told us that if we humble ourselves before you, that you will lift us up in your time, in due time, the right time. So Father, I pray that you'd help us to trust your timing and not ours. Help us to get off our calendar and onto yours. Forgive us for the times that we demand that you work in our timetable. God, you're not concerned about that because you see things from a different vantage point and you understand 
what the best ways to work in us so that you can work through us so that you can glorify yourself. And so I ask you, Jesus, that you would just instill in us perseverance, instill in us hope, a real hope, God, that because of your past faithfulness, it secures a future confidence. And we believe that, that you're present and that you're here. Help us to continue to believe and to persevere in it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.